Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You get better, I think. Each time we do this, you just get better at it. Wow, oh, you're just... You're- you're saying that. You're just saying that. You're just trying to make me blush. You, you, why are you buttering me up? <laughs> hey everyone, it's Elliot. And Todd. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar, an ongoing conversation about pop culture and iconic design. Today we're going to take a step back in time and into a bar from the past as we rub elbows with the beats. We may be in Greenwich Village. We could be in North Beach. Wherever our bar is for you, it's home to the hippest cats and the coolest kittens. So ask the bartender for some reasonably priced Chianti, wave the cigarette smoke away from your face, and dig the crazy scene right alongside us here in the bar. Why don't we start with a history lesson? How about that? I'm all for that. I like history. Okay. So, Todd, we're talking jazz album art and, of course, what immediately pops into your head and mine and probably all of our listeners is... Blue Note Records. Blue Note Records. Is Blue Note Records. I go, see? Thanks. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. I'm sure the, the listeners who were saying, oh, you know, I think it might be... And then you and just steamrolled them. I, I, I beat them. I beat them. You did. When we're at the bar, you, you know, you're very quick with your answers. I wish you were that quick in terms of getting us more drinks. But that's uh, that's another that's another argument for another time. I think. Well, I'm practicing for our family feud uh, debate. Oh, uh, oh, our, our, okay, uh, right, yeah, right, I think right. We we could do that. All right. Okay. Okay. Seriously, Blue Note Records is like, I mean, the only one, right? Uh, no, I mean there there are several others. We'll we'll get into that. We'll talk about that a little bit. But I would say Blue Note is the standard bearer, right? I mean, okay. so okay. many iconic albums. I think in the mind's eye of of most people, certainly jazz fans, when they think yep. of excellent and iconic album art, it's it's Blue Note records. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. But but first, I feel what we should do is. Talk about the founding of Blue Note. So who who was behind this? And and by that I mean not only the the designers, certainly we'll we'll talk about designers, but what I mean is the people with the vision, right? So who is mm-hmm. sort of the uh the mm-hmm. Steve Jobs of jazz, if you will? Like who is the one sponsoring all this good design and sort of laying down the uh 
being these standard bearers that all these other people had to catch up with and had to follow, right? Good question. Um, good question. I hope you know. I don't know. I'm assuming it was it it started like in Harlem or somewhere like in in New York City, but I I know nothing about its origin. Uh, no, but that's actually this is great. Okay. It did start in New York, so very good. I know you love a scene. I know you love New York. I do so love a you, scene, yes. Y- you triangulating on this is no surprise to me, no surprise to longtime listeners either, I'm sure. So yep. let's yep. talk a little bit about the history of Blue Note real quick. And what I'm going to do is rather than do something butchered and ham-fisted, which is what, again, longtime listeners are used to, I'm actually... Didn't that used to be the name of our podcast, Butchered <laughs> and Ham-fisted? It did. It might be again after this episode. We'll have to see. <laughs> actually, that might be... Hey, Quick plug for those of you who haven't left your review on Apple Podcasts yet. <laughs> the door just swung wide open. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Nothing but Greenfield on that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, so I want to talk about it using an excerpt. Um, there's a wonderful website I found called You Discover Music with the letter U. We'll put this link to the full article uh, on our episode page. But um, Really wanted to just read a couple paragraphs from the history, the origin story of Blue Note Records. Okay. All right. All right. Ahem. 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 Sibilance. Okay. (laughs) Here we go. It all began when Alfred Lyon went to the Spirituals of Swing concert at New York's Carnegie Hall a few days before Christmas in 1938. A week or so later, he went to Cafe Society, a newly opened club, to talk to Albert Ammons and Mead Lux Lewis. What a great name, huh? Mead yeah, really. Lux Lewis. Mead. I love that. Um, so Mead Lux Lewis, who Lyon had seen play at Carnegie Hall. He proposed the idea of recording them, assuring the two pianists that they would be paid. <laughs> and when they agreed, <laughs> Lyon booked the studio for January 6th, 1939, at a location thought to have been radio station WMGM, on the west side of Manhattan. Uh-huh, okay. All right. I see. This is going to turn into a story. <laughs> it is. Well, you know, we, we yeah. sort of know how it ends, but, but again, yeah, it's yeah. more about how it starts, right? So besides Ammons and Lewis, the engineer and Lion were the only people to witness this moment in history. So they're recording these musicians previously unknown to them before happening on this concert at at Carnegie Hall. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, jumping into the second paragraph here. In addition to paying Ammons and Lewis, Lyon brought whiskey to lubricate the pianist's fingers, and it worked as they completed 19 takes that night. Yeah, that's very much in the spirit spirit of the bar, I think. I think. I think he's our spirit animal, isn't he? Our spirit lion. Did you dip into the whiskey tonight to lubricate your vocal cords? Uh, I might have red leather, yellow leather, red leather, <laughs> yellow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice okay, and lubricated. Okay, yeah, yeah. Please, con- please continue, though. Yeah, yeah. You're not supposed to swallow the mouthwash, okay? <laughs> supposed to spit it out. Okay, so when the session ended and Lion had paid their fees, he didn't have enough money to cover the cost of the studio time. <laughs> so the musicians got paid, but the guys who ran the studio didn't. So the would-be entrepreneur left empty-handed, returning a few weeks later to pay for the masters. So he did pull the money together, eventually got the, the tapes. Later, while listening to the discs at his apartment, he knew this music deserved to be more widely heard. 
I said tapes. Obviously, it's not tapes. This is pre-tape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. According to Lyon, quote, I decided to make some pressings and go into the music business, unquote. So that's really how it all started. He just discovered jazz and wanted to do more with it. So who who was this Lyon? Uh, what, his name is Alfred Lyon. Who who was he? Was he like a music impresario or something? Uh, hardly. Hardly. Um, okay. So... Remember how we talked a little bit about, in past episodes, the Bauhaus guys, and we talked a little about Black Mountain College? So he was sort of in that same cohort as well, not with Uh, them, but in the sense of he was a German immigrant who came to America in the 30s to escape the Nazis. And then, uh obviously, um, in 1939, about, you know, a handful of years after coming to the U.S., he started up this jazz label. So we're going to talk a little bit about the photography, the the photography specifically of the musicians Mm -hmm. in this album art. Now, Mm -hmm. this is where it starts to get interesting. So he later takes on a partner, another exile from Germany, a guy named Francis Wolff. So Francis Wolff is his partner. And because of that, Wolf is sitting in on all these recording sessions. So mm-hmm. because he's there, he starts taking photos of them, these black and white photos. And it's while they were recording, you know, they were actually working. These were very slice of life shots. They weren't posed. Right, right. You know, the only way they were posed would be, say, if one of the musicians at that moment when they were laying down their their part of the track they weren't actually playing you naturally sit aside and you you wait for your your time to pop back in Mm -hmm. he might take some pictures of them resting in between um movements or or whatever you'd call it in jazz uh so he would get just all of these candid photos and the irreverence and sort of the the hip shot nature of those is one of the reasons that they became so interesting as a design element so we now have Two guys who are really into jazz, but they're into jazz in different ways. You know, one for the visual aspect or the experiential aspect, one for the just the beauty of the music itself. The, you know, mm-hmm, Lion mm-hmm. really appreciated the the art, right? Mm-hmm. So the name Blue Note. I was just going to ask you where the name Blue Note came from. Well, you could, yeah. I mean, I think you can sort of figure this out, right? It's it's sort of self explanatory, but it's brilliant, I think, in the sense that it's it's a it's a color, right? It's color. And then it's music, and it's it's just this wonderful connotation that I think that's part of the reason that the album art syncs up so well with the name, because I think even just someone says Blue Note, and I think that just puts an abstract visual in your head that it's something interesting. You know, it's not called XYZ Records or whatever, right? Right, right. So the name is derived from the blue notes of jazz and the blues, So it's based on the sonic footprint of this, or fingerprint, I guess might be a better word, for this type of music. What are blue notes? Uh, You're the musician. Well, yeah, I know. That's why I'm asking. I I imagine that's the... The, I, I'm making this up, but I would. And if you are a jazz or blues musician, please let us know. But I imagine it's the like things like grace notes that add the color and yeah. the tension and the sweat to the music, the yeah. tonality, those sorts yeah, of things, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's sort of what gives jazz its flavor, I think, or the blues its flavor. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the 
The label then was also noted for its role in facilitating the development of hard bop, post bop, avant-garde jazz. These, you know, the Charlie Parkers of the world and the John Coltrane's of the world, you know, all these people who are on this label and, and became, you know, Cannibal Adderley and, and just all of these people who became very, very well known in the jazz space and were all recording on, on Blue Note. Yeah, you know, there's plenty of people we'll be talking about that, um, uh, some of whom, of course, will be in our, our jazz art. All right. So it also, as I mentioned a minute ago, and as everybody knows, it was also becoming famous for its iconic and modernist art direction for all these albums, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, again, we, we've talked a little bit about this in the past with records. You know, now that we consume music digitally and music isn't really tangible, it, it's hard, especially I think for younger people, although we're getting this revival of vinyl and things like this, and CDs, mm -hmm. too. Um, I was just uh, reading something about this, that they're, they're both actually coming back. So I think there's this certain appreciation for tangibility with music. And so mm -hmm. thinking about the shelf appeal and everything, when you were going to a record store and you were looking through the bins or you saw things up on the shelf or up on the wall, almost like book covers... You wanted right. something yeah. that would communicate, right? right. Magazine covers. Exactly. Like you wanted something to tell the story uh, to entice the buyer. Now, I'm not uh, uh, certainly an expert on album art, but in my mind, that is the era where I think album art started kind of coming into its own. Like, you know, before that, it was... It, it probably a picture of the artist, maybe, or just some kind of um, overly used artwork, uh, uh, something traditional. But it seems like Blue Note is one of those labels, and at that time, where the artwork started having its own voice and, and mimicking the music. Yes, I, I will agree with that. So they didn't invent the album cover in terms of original art. We'll, uh -huh. we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. But I think what they did do is they, they certainly took it out of the utilitarian, right? So a lot of times what record labels would do, and this is probably to save money as much as anything else, you would have like a, a standard album jacket, like a sleeve, like the true sense, like a sleeve, right. like wax paper or right. something. And what communicated what was on the record was you'd have a big die-cut circle in the middle, and you would read the label that was actually uh -huh. on the record itself. So really, that's what was sort of doing the selling. Really uh, wasn't, uh -huh. it wasn't, like we were talking about a minute ago, uh, a book cover or a miniature poster or a magazine cover. It wasn't that sort of, that sensibility, that commercial sensibility really hadn't come into the fore yet. You know, that was very nascent. It was just getting started at around this time. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. part of that, you got to keep in mind too, and we'll talk more about this as well, is this isn't too long after the era when an album was actually an album. When you had shellac discs during like World War II, for example, when you had material right. shortages and it was one song on each side and they were 78s and you would only fit one song. And so if you had recorded six songs, that was three 78 records, for example, in, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this this jacket, essentially this pack that this album that held these multiple records. So there was a cost involved there and, and everything like that. 
I think it was just a different sensibility. I think technology helped to, when you could fit more onto a single thing, when you could package more onto a long playing record, there was, I think, more value seen there. And so it's like, hey, yeah. let's invest yeah. more in this format. Let's give people a little bit oomph, you know, when they're buying something else. Yeah. I imagine uh, it, the market is starting to get a little more competitive, too, because of the accessible technology there. Mm-hmm. So more people are making albums, so they have to find ways to make them stand out more. Exactly. Exactly. So they become known, Blue Note becomes very known for uh, this art direction. They began recording and releasing modern jazz in 1947. You know, modern, you know, what we tend to think of jazz being not like swing music or or these older forms of jazz, but like we're talking about like bebop, hard bop, like what we think of as more traditional mid-century jazz music. Yeah. And they grew to be one of the most prolific, influential, and respected jazz labels of the mid-20th century. And again, I think the fact that the look and feel of these albums are in the mind's eye of most people, the fact that we can sit here and we can start naming even though you and I are not dyed into wool jazz heads, we can name a bunch of musicians who are on this label. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're household names in terms of the world right. of music. Like, And they have, of course, influenced you know subsequent generations of musicians in and outside of jazz, right? Miles Davis, uh-huh. how many yeah, people did he influence? Or Herbie Hancock. Right, uh, Charlie Parker. Yeah, 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 the list goes like, on. Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, Thelonious Monk. The list just goes on and on yeah, and on. Yeah, yeah. So... How did they make this shift? In the mid-40s, what made them say, oh, you know, we shouldn't be recording this old stuff that we've been recording for seven or eight years. We should really be looking at this new stuff. Mm -hmm. So this was sort of a piece of dumb luck. There were two things that happened, two pivotal things. So the first was in July of 1944, a new name appeared one day on their studio log. A guy, and this is such a great name, a 25-year-old tenor saxophonist named Ike Quebec. <laughs> I love that name. You can't make <laughs> hey. this stuff up. Yeah, Ike Quebec. Take off, Hoser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he was American, though. Oh, well, it's a, he could still. Plus, if you're going to say that, I need to have more of a French accent. Uh, yeah, but I, if with a name like Ike Quebec, you know, come on. You're an honorary Canadian. True. Say that five times I do fast. love Canadians. Oh, I do I know. love Canadians. I know yeah. you do. I know you do. Whether or not they love you is open for debate, I think. That's true. I just wanted to put it out there for international relations. But please, say more about Mr. Quebec. <laughs> Quebec. <laughs> so he had Ike Quebec's swing tet. So that's who was going to be recording at the studio. And so it was a swing-based band. So it was still traditional. We're talking about the shift to non-traditional, the more modern music, right? Uh-huh. So... As we mentioned, bebop was the latest craze in jazz. And Quebec had become, <laughs> because of Blue Note's reputation, he had sort of become an unofficial A&R guy to Blue Note. So artist and repertoire, for those of you who don't know what A&R means. So they're kind mm-hmm. of the liaison or the go-between between the artist and the, and the label itself, right? So he's connecting Blue Note to different artists. And... The first of these quote-unquote new artists to record was a singer named Babs Gonzalez. Oh, now that's a name too right there. That's a good name. Oh, wait, it it gets better. Okay. So this guy apparently, he was also Errol Flynn's chauffeur. 
He was his what? former chauffeur. <laughs> so he goes from being Errol Flynn's chauffeur to being a jazz star, right? Yeah. He's like, well, I'm just chauffeuring. I can do jazz exactly. stuff. Yeah. Uh, I can paint houses. I can, you know, do some doctoring. And Yeah, it's more like, what can't I do, right? Babs Gonzalez, man of many, many talents. Babs Gonzalez, Esquire. That's right. Yeah. So he embraced the basics of bop. And then when he recorded this song, and this is a great song called Oop Bop Ba Da. Have you ever heard that? I don't know, but I like that title. Oh, and it's wonderful. I would buy it just because it's called Oop Bop Ba Da by Babs Gonzalez. Yeah. Well, it's actually by Three Bips and a Bop. <laughs> that's oh, what. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that was the name of the uh, group that recorded we will post uh, somewhere, I'm not sure when, probably in our, our last episode about the Beats, I am going to um, talk a little bit about a box set that came out, oh gosh, probably 20 years ago now from Rhino Records. And it's this very uh-huh. affectionate look back on the Beats and everything that was going on at the time. And um, that song, the reason I'm familiar with that track is it is in that box set. Oh, okay. All so right. they nailed it. Yeah, it was really, really great. So, oop-bop-a-da by three bips and a bop. Okay, and that was in 1947. You did that really well. Are you a bip or a bop Well, when you were singing that? I I think I, I'll, I'll say I was a bop. Okay, you got to think about that. Yeah, well, I, well, it's three bips, and I don't know who they would be, but since I'm by myself, I'll say I'm a bop. Okay, okay, good. I mean, that's just, you know, syntax, but... Okay, so you said that there were two uh, pivotal events, and uh, obviously... Errol Flynn's former chauffeur was one, right? Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, and I mean, you know, whether or not Errol Flynn was actually ever driven to Blue Note, I, I don't know. That might have been lost to the sands of time. But Yeah, yeah. The second thing is Quebec helped introduce Lion and Wolf. So remember, those are the two partners of Blue Note. The, yeah, the owners, right? Yeah, to Thelonious Monk, to the music of Thelonious Monk. Name sounds familiar. Yep. I, it should. Very well known. And then a few months later, Art Blakey and his Messengers, which is another name that should sound familiar, they made their first recording for the label. And Blakey would remain a staple of the label for the next 15 years. So he was like one of the house acts. So he fell in love with Blue Note. He was very good to Blue Note. I think Blue Note was very good to them. So as we wrap up and we transition into specific album art, that we love, I want to end our introduction of Blue Note with a motto that was created by Lion that still guides the label today, because Blue Note still exists today. This was sort of his manifesto uh, that I he... Think, I think he should have let Babs Gonzalez <laughs> write the motto. Well, maybe Babs Gonzalez sang it. I mean, I'm, I'm okay, just going to... I'm just going to... Yeah, I'm just going to read it, and that'll probably... Okay. I don't know if that'll disappoint listeners or if it'll they'll be relieved. <laughs> but either way, yeah, I'm going to read but, it. Okay. Okay. So, Blue Note Records are designed to serve the uncompromising expressions of hot jazz or swing. Direct and honest hot jazz is a way of feeling, a musical and social manifestation, and Blue Note Records are concerned with identifying its impulse, not its sensational and commercial adornments. Okay. So I think it's very interesting. If you parse that a little bit, you and I talked a minute ago about how 
album art was very commercial and it was very, hey, look at me, whatever. But if you read into this statement, he's almost saying the opposite. He's almost saying, like, everything is rooted in the purity of the form of jazz being a form of expression. He's like, we don't give a shit about the commercial part. We want want the artists to express themselves. Right. And so, yeah, it's all about the, the quality of the product. But I think what ended up happening and what makes the albums we're about to talk about so great is that... Because of that, I think because they had such good material to work with, they were able to sort of have this process that allowed for great things to be made visually to match the things that were being made sonically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And it seems like there that process was not unlike the jazz process, where it was very... Uh, reactive to the here and now. It was there were a lot of impulses. There were, I mean, it's, it's exactly what you said in a previous episode about the beats, the the literary and the visual artist is. They were all about the here and now and mm-hmm. the expression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why is jazz so associated with the beats? It wasn't, you know, what we thought of like the Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald jazz. It was a lot looser. Um, So I imagine that has something to do with being kind of the music of the beats was it was spontaneous. It was creative on the spot. It was challenging intellectually. All of those things. And I'll add two more. I think the, the first one is the fact that it was made by people who are also perennial outsiders. Okay. All right. Right. It was made um, by by black folks. And so think about, like I mentioned earlier, the struggle for civil rights. And so, you know, and a lot of these folks were heroin addicts. So they were copying Mm. drugs Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 using in the same way that the beats were and vice versa. So all of this is is going on. And um I, I think the, the other reason is related to that is the Beats saw jazz as authentic. Oh, okay. Jazz was on these smaller labels. Jazz wasn't Frank Sinatra, right? It wasn't the the mainstream things that you were hearing through the radio. It was the alternative music of its time. It wasn't Elvis Presley, it, but because right. that was that was rock and roll. Uh, Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, Little Richard. Mm-hmm. Um which has kind of a similar um, uh, origin story, but it took on more of a mainstream swing to it. So, mm-hmm. so the beats, uh, the beats probably looked at that as maybe being a little too primitive for their uh, intellectual selves. Maybe primitive. Maybe also a little bit too, as time went on, synthesized. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so they were attracted to what wasn't in the mainstream at the time. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Reed Miles really established sort of the look. Right. Right. So there were labels in addition to Blue Note. There was Prestige. There was Verve. And these are all still around today. They're owned by larger companies, larger record entities, but they're still around. And these typefaces that we think about, again, a lot of folks may not know the names of these faces, but for you type geeks out there who know there's a world beyond uh, Comic Sans, 
These typefaces were Franklin Gothic, Trade Gothic, Clarendon, Poster Bedoni, and then these fun quote-unquote Latin typefaces with the bouncy characters and the really pointed serifs, you know, the little feet that are on all the all the letter forms. So the this gets into exactly what you were talking about earlier, the bouncing type and, and things like right, this. Right, right, right. Okay, so let's zero in on three picks. And Todd, this, I think, curating this narrowing it down to three <laughs> might have been one of the hardest assignments I've ever had. <laughs> uh, okay. Because, uh, yeah, because there's a bunch of them, right? Yes. I mean, there are books on Blue Notes album designs alone. And so oh, to, wow. to, to narrow it down to three was, I don't know, uh, a bonsai tree wrapped in a haiku, wrapped in a zen <laughs> rock garden of minimal... I mean, I, it was it was just incredibly, yeah. incredibly challenging. Okay. So... Um, People will probably disagree with my list. That's fine. Um, go ahead and email Todd if you disagree. Email me yeah, if you agree. Right. By the way, we both share one email address, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speaking of complaints, uh, who do I need to bark at to get a refill for my cocktail? <laughs> Jeez, Ellie, sounds like all this jazz hasn't mellowed you one little bit. But I'll tell you what, everybody. Freshen your drinks, replace the candle on your cafe table, and meet us back here in the bar in just a minute. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi. We want to take a moment to mention that if you're enjoying this episode, we have an archive of topics ranging from the Olympics to movie posters. Think Ghostbusters. Iconic images. Think Bigfoot. Punk music. The Ramones. Saturday morning cartoons. The Pink Panther. And failed products like OK Soda. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com for full episode notes and visuals the latest blog content, and to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Find the links on our website or search using the phrase, Two Designers Walk Into a Bar. Most importantly, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people like you find podcasts like this. And tell a friend about us. Send them a link to our podcast from your listening platform of choice. And, if you're inclined, buy our merchandise. Stickers, coasters, magnets, t-shirts. We're designers. We make good stuff, and it helps support the show. Get in touch. Use the contact form on our website, or send an email to hello at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. We read every message we get, honest. And we're available for speaking gigs. Email us to learn more. Okay, now, back to the bar. When I say jazz album, what pops into your head? Like, what is that sort of visual look? Like, if you're holding a jazz album in your hand, what does it look like to you? Well, I obviously think of Blue Note, and when I think of Blue Note, I think of uh, 
I think of black and usually a bright color and kind of, I would say, adventurous typography for the time. Yeah, I, I think you, you nailed it. That like really bouncy, bounciness yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah because it's, it's mimicking the, the rhythm of the music. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right? Yeah, and and it's, so that, that, yeah. it's meant to be fun. So let's talk about how that came to be, where, you know, where that look came from. Because I would say in terms of pop culture, whether you're a jazz fan or not, a music fan or not, if you're not a designer, you might not be able to articulate what that look is. But kind of like pornography, you know it when you see it, right? Like, uh-huh. right <laughs> you can right. just lay your finger on it and say, yep, that's that's jazz. Okay. So where did that come from? The false duotone or two-color jazz look. You just mentioned it, black and white photography. These like modernist principles of things like white space and, and stuff. So these were coming along at the time. But I, I would imagine another thing is also limited printing budgets. You got to keep in mind mm-hmm. at this time, um, it wasn't like it is today where, you know, four color printing was how everything was done. And four colors, of course, being sand, magenta, yellow, black, which is how newspapers and magazines and and most high-end media we consume today is is printed Mm -hmm. um it was really expensive to do at the time and so if you're a smaller label on a budget and you're putting something out you have no idea how many of these things might sell you're going to try to make something that certainly has shelf appeal, right, as I'm at the record store, but something that I'm not going to lose money on if some of the albums end up getting returned to me because they weren't sold. Right, right. So it's a real balance, I think, of economics and creativity. You know, it's interesting as I'm thinking about that too, uh, Elliot, that makes a lot of sense to me. And when I think about kind of the the quintessential uh, Blue Note album, it often is um, one of the uh, or two of the of the process colors like cyan and black. Like I think of that if if I were to do something to mimic the blue note look, I would use those colors. So I imagine that goes back to it being um, less expensive and mm-hmm. and jazz was not mainstream. This this type of jazz was not mainstream, so budgets were limited. Right, right. And thinking about these constraints, I always feel like these Blue Note albums, these jazz albums from this time, because it wasn't just Blue Note. I mean, Blue Note was tremendously influential, but other jazz labels also followed suit and were doing some very interesting things. Mm-hmm. But this was really a masterclass for any creative person in terms of using constraints to your advantage, right? Like, mm, how do you turn yeah. a negative into a positive? Having said that, let's jump in and let's talk about a few albums that we like. All right. Okay, so the first one is an album on Blue Note that Reed Miles designed uh-huh. by Lee Morgan. And uh, this is called Leeway. So I think this is really, really fun. This was released in 1961. And Morgan was a trumpet player, for those of you who okay. don't know who he was. Classic two-color idea, what you just talked about, mm-hmm. with sort of a red-orange. So for those of you who are fans of the Dukes of Hazard, kind of General Lee-looking red-orange, <laughs> and, uh, and then black inks. 
And then the album title is this beefy slab serif typeface in white. It's actually that Clarendon typeface I mentioned earlier. And it's broken onto two lines, Lee and then Dash and then Way on a line below it. Uh-huh. And it's knocked out of this red-orange background. So everything is black except the title, which is in white. And then one other thing that I'll get to in just a moment. This is, in my opinion, sort of a masterstroke in terms of this, this design. To the right of the title is a slim vertical rectangle rotated about 10 degrees clockwise uh-huh. with a grayscale photo of Lee Morgan inside. He's got his trumpet at his lips and his eyes are cutting a glance sideways to the left looking right at his name, at which the is title. the first yeah. line of the title. It's so brilliant yeah. because you're always thinking, well, what is he looking at? And it just directs you right back to the title. So, so smart. Yeah. And then above this rectangle in a bold condensed typeface, Franklin Gothic again, you type snobs, are the names of the musicians featured on the record. And they are all in black. Mm -hmm. But Lee's name, which is the first one in the list, is in white. So Mm -hmm. Lee Wei, Lee Morgan are the only things in white knocked out against this red-orange background. Everything else is in black, and so it's just set back a little bit visually. So, so smart. So this provides a great aha visual link for the person considering buying or enjoying listening to this album. I get it. Mm. Lee Morgan plays the trumpet on this album. (laughs) You can really start to connect the dots, but it's not in this sort of pedantic way, right? And then the Blue Note logo, again, is this iconic lockup of shapes and and words. It's printed in black, and it's tucked into the upper left-hand corner, and it really works to balance everything out. Otherwise, it'd be this big, vacant area, sort of in the the upper quarter, the upper left-hand quarter of of the layout. So, Again, you take a disadvantage. Hey, you got to have this logo on here and you use it to your advantage as a as a creative person, which I think is great. And given the background color and the treatment of the photos and the names, I'm reminded of a struck match. It it really looks like it's, you know, the photo is the it looks like a matchstick. Yeah, yeah a matchstick. Yeah. And then the, and the, the head the of it is, is the, the musician. Head of it. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's like this is fire. This is going to be hot, yeah. right? And then that's influenced or or reinforced, I should say, by that red orange background. Mm-hmm. So this to mm-hmm. me is so much fun. I mean, what do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, well, the First thing that comes to mind when I'm looking at it is just how boldly simple it is. Like I, you know, I look at that and go, I'm not sure I could have practiced that much restraint. I, I'm not sure that I would have been happy with a giant title uh, of the album, Leeway, which is not even capitalized. It's all lowercase yeah. and has a hyphen in it. Like, I mean, sure, there was plenty of room to not have that one word broken into two lines. Yeah, it's but, a six-letter uh, word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, but Reed was like, uh, we're using type more expressively. Um, I never, I didn't get the whole kind of allusion to a matchstick that you brought up, but I think when you say that, it's 100% right. It, it definitely is. It looks like a matchbook cover, and it looks like mm-hmm. I'm pulling one of the matchsticks away. Yeah, I, I just, I love this so much. Okay, so... So far, you agree with my choice. So, so far, far, I'm I'm one for one. Okay. Yes. All right. Good. Okay. Well, that's good. 
Um, but so far, I'm, I'm still potentially failing. That's only 33%. Okay. <laughs> we got all that jazz going on here today. Oh, all man. that jazz. Hey, I'll tell you what, Todd. Speaking of all that jazz, now that we're out of time with this episode, you know, I, I see the bartender motioning for last call. How about this? How okay. about we stick a pin in this and we come back next time with our other two jazz albums that we're going to talk about. I promise they are good and uh, we can see what sort of grade you give me, if you recall you, you know. Oh, right, right. You know, you want me to get a 100 or, well, I I think, I mean, good intentions, I want to get a 100, I assume. You're an overachiever, yeah, so you want a 100. Yeah, I want to get a 105 then. Okay, yeah, well, you're right. Well, you know, the it's great talking about these jazz albums. Jazz is such a huge part of the beat culture uh, and it's great to see how they all compare and how they progress. So we'll see everyone back here around the bar very, very soon. Take care. So, Jim, we got a problem with our podcast. Right. Nobody says it correctly. No. Some people say how to fix it. Or how do you fix it? But think of it like this. Whatever the problem, we're in this together. How do we fix it? How How do do we we fix fix it? it? Yeah. How do we fix it? The solution show from the political to the personal. Practical ideas for creative listeners. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Ideas that work. That's your radio voice, Richard. Oh, well, I know. (laughs) I love it. I couldn't do it to save my life. Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.